Let's turn over to Psalms chapter 10 tonight and look at some more scriptures about preparing your heart, sensitizing your heart towards the Lord. In Psalms chapter 10, once again, this is David. You know, the Bible, it's no coincidence that David is the one who said, my heart is fixed five different times in four verses because David was a man after God's own heart. David had a soft heart, a heart that was seeking after God, and he's the one that did this exact same thing. He wrote about it. So in Psalms chapter 10, verse 17, it says here, Lord, thou hast heard the desire of the humble. Thou wilt prepare their heart. Thou wilt cause thine ear to hear. The Lord said here that he would prepare the heart of the humble. In other words, when a person humbles himself before God, then God immediately begins to start coming in and working on your heart. You know, you cannot deal with your heart just on your own. Now, it is your choice. It's a, it's a result of your choices. But it takes God's supernatural intervention to prepare your heart. Look over in uh, Proverbs chapter 18, I believe it is. Or excuse me, it's verse six, chapter 16. Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 1. It says, the preparations of the heart in man and the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. See, that verifies what I was saying, that it takes God to really mold your heart and to make your heart like it's supposed to be. Another scripture that I use this morning is Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 23, where he says, I know, O Lord, that it is not in man to direct his own steps. Man cannot just direct our own steps. We can't choose our own life. We can't really mold our heart and fashion it the way that God wants it to be. The only thing that we can do is make ourselves open to the Lord and invite the Lord to come in and begin to start moving in your life and molding your heart. That's our, our part is to choose. We're the one that chooses life, but then God has to come in and actually implement it. So over here in the 10th chapter of Psalms, verse 17, says, Lord, thou hast heard the desire of the humble, thou wilt prepare their heart. Oh, that's powerful. You want God to prepare your heart? You want God to give you a heart that is sensitive to God, one that hears the voice of God, one that will respond to Him? Boy, if you want that, you know how you do it? I believe one of the very first steps is what it's saying right here is about humbling yourself before God. When you use the word humble, it loses a lot of meaning to most people. Most people think of humble as somebody that goes around beat down and feels like that you're nothing and no good and things like that. And it's actually got a bad rap. And uh, not very many people uh, understand what true humility is. You can define it in a lot of different ways. But true humility is just literally being God-centered to where you aren't self-centered, you aren't self-seeking, self-serving, you aren't self-dependent. I believe that that's a way you could define it. A person who is self-confident, that is dependent upon themselves. Do you know that that is a very proud person? A person who goes around and constantly beats themselves down. That's just a negative form of pride. It's a negative side, but it's still pride. It's self-centeredness. Pride in its simplest forms is self-centeredness. Look up here in this very 10th chapter, and I'm just going to isolate a few things in this 10th chapter. I haven't got time to read through all of it. But in verse 1... He starts off by saying, Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why hidest thou thyself in times of trouble? This is just him saying, God, it looks like you aren't intervening. It looks like that the ungodly are winning at times. Why aren't you setting things straight? And then he begins to talk about some of the things that the wicked are doing. In verse 2, he said, The wicked in his pride doth persecute the poor. This is just simply talking about that the, 
uh, wicked people oppress the poor. They take advantage of it. They're con artists. They're destroying people and doing things like that. Let them be taken in the devices that they have imagined. Well, you know, I was meditating on this, and, and I hadn't got time to go through this, but a great example of this where he says, let them be taken in the devices that they have imagined. Look back in the ninth chapter of Psalms here. In verse 15, it says, The heathen are sunk down in the pit that they made. In the net which they hid is their own foot taken. You know, the point that he's making is that the wicked and the ungodly will be caught by their own devices. And see, that's exactly what he's saying here in Psalms chapter 10, verse 2. He says, Let them be taken in the devices that they have imagined. A classic example of that in Scripture for me is, is um, was it Haman over in the book of Esther that tried to destroy Mordecai the Jew? He was envious of Mordecai. Mordecai got all of this credit and all of this pomp and circumstance. So what he did was devise a way to destroy Mordecai. And he did it by accusing to the king that the Jews were the, were the source of all of the problems in the realm of Babylon. And so if they would just destroy the Jews, everything would be fine. And he got the king to okay that. He, he declared a day where throughout his entire realm, the people had free season on the Jews. They could kill any Jew that they wanted and seize their belongings. There was a monetary motive behind it. They could go in and kill them and take anything that they had. And so Haman thought, boy, this is great. And he went and uh, he made a gallows that he was going to hang um, Mordecai on. And he had all of this big plan. And anyway, it's a long story. But what happened was God turned the whole thing around. And when the king finally found out what Mordecai's real uh, motive was, he made a declaration that the Jews could defend themselves and that they could kill anybody that tried to kill them and, and take their possessions. And so what happened was the fear fell upon the people. Nobody came out against the Jews, and the Jews had a free hand, and they went and destroyed all of their enemies and took all of their possessions, and they were so successful at it that they got a second day to do the same thing. They got twice as many days, and they went and hung Haman on the very gallows that he had made for Mordecai. He was taken in the very uh, device that he had planned for him. I mean, it works, amen? The wicked are caught in their own imaginations. It works. And so this is what he's talking about. The wicked in his pride. Notice here that pride is descriptive of all of these things that he's talking about the wicked. You know, pride is a serious, serious problem. And in our society today, it's nearly unchecked. Matter of fact, it's encouraged. It's glorified. All of the stuff that we see among movie stars, a lot of the stuff in rock music and all of this kind of stuff, I mean, it is pride. It stinks. God hates it. Look at the very next verse here. It says in verse 3, For the wicked boasteth of his heart's desire. Boasting here is another manifestation of pride. It didn't use the word, but it's still talking about pride, arrogance. The wicked boasteth of his heart's desire and blesseth the covetous whom the Lord abhorreth. Boy, this doesn't fit well with our society today. Covetousness is something that God abhors. Colossians chapter 3 verse 5 says that covetousness is idolatry. You know, there's not many people in America that would think that Americans have idols today. But I guarantee you, America is full of idols. There's some people that worship the things that their hands have done for them, the things they've got, their possessions. There's some people that would turn on the Lord in a second if serving the Lord meant poverty in their life. Now, it doesn't. God wants to bless us, but I'm saying that there are some people that have substituted 
uh, prosperity things for God. Matter of fact, a lot of people have done that. And notice that the wicked here, he associates with covetousness, and he, he associates all of that with pride. Again, pride isn't just necessarily thinking you're better than everybody else. Pride is self-centeredness. Did you know when a person becomes self-centered and starts trying to indulge self, it becomes like a drug addiction? You can never satisfy self. You can't ever give self enough. And most of us have seen this. You know, there are people that think if I just had a better job, if I had a different car, if I just had this, if I just had that, if I had more of this, then I'd be happy. They're looking for happiness in things. And brothers and sisters, that's not where happiness comes from. I took a pastor with me over to Romania. And I remember coming out of Romania, this pastor was just brokenhearted at some of the things that we saw. We were with a little Baptist couple over there that took all of the Bibles. We shipped over 10,000 Bibles and distributed them, and they took these Bibles for us and kept them at their house. And uh, none of the Pentecostals would take the Bibles. They said, who needs a Bible? Who would want a Bible? The Pentecostals wouldn't take it, but the Baptists took it. So we stored them at their house, and we were over visiting with them. And this Baptist couple, boy, it was neat. What, I mean, I, it was a highlight of my life getting to share with them. And I really learned a lot being with them. And I remember this lady, particularly this lady, boy, she loved God. They had uh, an instance where all of the electricity was shut off to their home all throughout the winter, and they had ice an inch thick on the inside ceiling, walls, and floor of their apartment all winter long, an inch coat of ice. And their staple diet, what they ate every day of their life, except when we were there. These people gave us meat to eat when we were there. But you know what they ate normally? They ate bread and pig lard spread on it, and that's what they eat three meals a day. Sometimes they fry it, sometimes they just eat it straight. And it's very unusual for a person over there to live beyond 50 years old. They're killing themselves. And these people had witnessed everybody. They had been beaten. They had been imprisoned for being a Christian. They had their daughter taken away from them and made fun of and beat in school because her parents were Christians. This lady was in a university when she got born again and she lost her job and was put down to a menial job. And on and on all of the stories go. And yet, man, they just loved God. They were happy. They were excited. They had a joy and a peace that was unbelievable. And when we left that place, I remember this pastor I had with me, he was just overcome. And he says, we've got to do something to help these people. We, and he started thinking of things. We've got to get them things. We've got to do this and do that. And I told him, you know, I said, those people know more about joy than the average American will ever know about. They have more peace, more presence with God, more joy in their heart than the average American had ever thought of. I said, why would we want to go over there and divert their attention towards things? But, you know, that's what the typical American would want to do. They go over and see somebody in a situation like that, and, boy, we've got to help them. We've got to get them some things so that they can be happy. <laughs> boy, those people know what happiness is all about. Covetousness isn't where it's at. I'm sure that there's people in this place tonight that you just are bummed out, discouraged, I mean defeated, depressed, because you don't have things. And you're thinking, if I could just get some more things, if I had this and if I had that, then my life would be better. You're missing it just like putting a carrot on a stick and tying it to your back, dangling it out in front of you. And every time you take a step for it, it just moves with you. It's always a little bit out of reach. There's some of you that are numbing yourself to the problem, the real problem, your personal relationship with God, thinking that, well, it's just a little bit better job. And if, it's, if I just had a different wife, then everything would be okay. Or if I had this or if I had that, that's not your problem. 
We're just self-centered. We're constantly trying to satisfy self. You cannot satisfy self. Self has a bottomless pit to it. The only way that you're ever going to prosper against self is to deny it and to reject it and substitute something for self in your life. See, this is the point that Jesus was making when he said that a man's life doesn't consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. He says that it's when you lose your life that you find out what life is all about. It's in serving that you really become Lord and master over things. The way up in God's system is down. Amen? Well, that really goes over well in America. People just don't think that way. Boy, it's kick and scratch and claw and do whatever you got to. Step on people. Take care of self. I've got my rights. Boy, that whole attitude stinks. You're trying to exalt your rights at the expense of somebody else. It just doesn't work. You need to find out that it's in giving your life for other people that that's what life is all about. See, that's what these scriptures are talking about. Look in the fourth verse here. It says, The wicked through the pride of his countenance. Notice, here's three verses. They're all talking about wicked. Notice the common denominator in every one of them. Pride. Boasting. Pride. The wicked through the pride of his countenance. You know what the word countenance means there in the Hebrew? If you look it up, it means the nose or the nostril. Well, I thought about that a long time, and I got to studying this. And you know what it's descriptive of if you study it out? It's talking about somebody walking around with their nose up in the air. You know, that we use that to describe people, that they've got their nose in the air. They think they're better than everybody else. They're just totally self-centered. That's what it's describing. It's talking about a person. I, I don't know if that's where that uh, phrase and that kind of thought came from, but this is exactly what this is describing. A person going around can't see anybody else's needs, nobody else's problems because they're so zeroed in on themselves. Arrogant, self-centered is what it's talking about. It says the wicked through his own self-centeredness, his pride, his attention upon himself will not seek after God. You know why people don't seek after God? You can boil this down. You can say it a lot of different ways. But the bottom line is the reason that we don't seek after God is because of our own self-centeredness. Because we've got our own agenda. Matter of fact, if somebody here's got an NIV Bible, has anybody got an NIV? If you'd read that, I think it's... Read that what it says. Verse 4. In his pride, the wicked does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for the way it says it is that there is no room for God. You know what that's implying is? That you're so busy with everything else. You've got all of your career. You've got all of your agenda, all of the things you're doing, that there's just no room for God in your life. God isn't in all of their thoughts. A person that doesn't have God in all of their thoughts is a very proud person, a very self-centered person. Boy, it's quiet in here. I'm not saying any of these things to be hard on anybody. I'm not trying to hurt you. I really believe that this is one of the very most important things about softening your heart towards God. You can't have two people on the throne of your life. You cannot be sitting on the throne of your life and have God on the throne of your life at the same time. Your attention cannot be towards God and towards yourself at the same time. They're opposite extremes. They're opposite poles. They're mutually exclusive. You just cannot do that. If God is going to be the center of your life, self is going to have to take a back seat. You're going to have to get to a place to where you aren't zeroed in and trying to promote self all of the time. 
And brothers and sisters, that is not very common. Um, that kind of attitude isn't very common in our society. Sad to say, even most Christians don't have that attitude. A lot of you were brought into the spirit-filled, charismatic move because of selfish reasons. And that's not 100% wrong. I mean, people that have marital problems, you go and tell them that, hey, God wants to change your life and help you and, and save your marriage. And so you use basically a self-centered thing. They're looking for help in some area. And so you go to them and tell them that the Lord is the answer. That's okay. That's fine. There's people that, you know, they're sick. And you go to them and tell them that, hey, God's alive today. God does miracles today. God can heal your body. And so they come to the Lord for a self-serving purpose. That's okay to come that way, but it's wrong to stay there. We ought to get people and let them know that it's in denying yourself and in putting Jesus first place in your life and serving Him that that's where your real life and joy and power comes from. That's the number one thing in softening your heart towards God, making, preparing your heart for the Lord. And yet most people don't know that. Actually, the spirit-filled movement or whatever you want to call this that we're in, I don't know, amen, but the non-denominational type of stuff, I really believe that there are probably more self-centered people in spirit-filled Christianity than there is in a lot of denominational Christianity. And the reason being because denominations don't tell you that there is very many benefits to serving God in this life. Amen? <laughs> Matter of fact, they tell you God's the one that puts sickness on you. God's the one that makes your life miserable. God's the one that wants to hurt you. God's the one that killed your family. They tell you that God wants you to be poor. And, you know, if you stay with a God like that and serve Him, you've got to deal with self. I mean, self cannot be predominant in your life. And, of course, there's people that don't follow through with that doctrine either, but I'm saying there's probably more people that are humble before God. Their heart is probably more sensitive to God in a lot of ways than a lot of spirit-filled people because there's so many benefits. There's so many blessings in being, you know, walking in the full gospel and knowing that God wants to do everything. I believe in a full gospel. I believe God wants to bless you, but, you know, that shouldn't be your motivation. When a person comes before me and says, well, man, I'm not going to serve God if he can't heal me. I've had people tell me that before. I prayed and I didn't get healed. I'm just going to quit if God can't heal me. You old self-centered thing. <laughs> well, if God doesn't do what I need, then I'll just forsake him. You know, I made a commitment to the Lord before I found out that God did heal. I thought God's the one that killed my dad when I was 12 years old. That's what I was told pastor came over to my house and says, God needed your dad in heaven more than you needed him. That wasn't the truth. God didn't need my dad in heaven. It wasn't God that killed my dad. But see, that's what I thought. I thought God killed my dad. I thought that the problems in my life were, were all God-ordained. I thought my inferiority and everything else, that God made me this way. But you know what? I was serving a God like that. I was loving and serving and committed to a God that I thought killed my dad. Some of you think, well, I wouldn't serve a God like that. Well, I would, and I did. You know, I didn't go to God and say, God, I'll serve you if you measure up to these standards. I didn't tell God what he had to be like. If God's God, I'll serve him. If God was a bad God, I'd serve him. Amen? I deserve it. I mean, he deserves it. He deserves my worship. If he's my creator, I'm obligated to him. I don't I can go to God and pick out. It's just a blessing to find out what the Word says, that God is a good God, and I know the thoughts that I think towards you, thoughts of good and not of evil. I praise God that He is a good God, but I'm saying that I'd serve Him regardless. See, this is part of fixing your heart. This is part of setting your heart. It's coming to a decision that there is only one God, and you are not Him. Amen? 
Boy, that is great theology. God is the only one who's worthy of sitting at the throne of your life and at the controls of your life, and you are not God. It's wrong. You don't have the right to run your life. And again, our society really goes, you know, haywire over stuff like that. I took a group of kids one time to a Baptist encampment. I was a youth director in a Baptist church, and I took these group of kids, and uh, they had long hair. And this is back in the 60s, maybe is in the early 70s, and this is when uh, that was not prevalent the way that it is today. And I mean the Baptist church that I was in said you went directly to hell. You do not pass go. You do not collect $200. I mean, you go to hell for having long hair. It was, they were really against these guys. And yet they had some real good things that God had done in their life. They loved the Lord. So I took them to this Baptist camp. And I mean, there was over a thousand kids there. And the kids and the directors of the camp, everybody singled them out and started making fun of them. In the mess hall, when we'd go in for lunch, they'd whistle at them. And then somebody would say, oh, stop, he might hit you with his purse. And they made fun of them. They had jokes about them. Anyway, these kids put up with it for about two or three days. And finally, I saw them. I was watching them pretty close because I knew that it was a bad situation. And I finally saw all these young guys huddled out on the lawn, and they were plotting something. So I walked out there and got to listening, and you know what they were doing? They had certain scriptures on their side. They were going to go in, and if anybody countered them in the mess hall that day, they were going to blast them, stand up in front of everybody and read them the riot act and defend themselves. And I, I went out and talked to them, and I said, Hey, guys, this isn't what God would want you to do. And they said, Well, we got rights. They can't treat me this way. It's wrong for them to treat me that way. And I said, Well, sure it's wrong, but I said that doesn't give you any right to, to respond that way. And it just shocked them like... Well, we need to stand up. We've got rights too. And I said, you gave up your rights when you became a Christian. I said, you surrendered yourself to the Lord. The scripture says, vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. I will repay out of Romans chapter 13. If you take vengeance into your own hands, you know what you do? You take vengeance away from God. God wants to defend you. God wants to set the record straight. But if you take matters into your own hands, you can stop the power of God from moving in your behalf. The scripture says in James chapter 1, it says the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. Most of us don't believe that. Most of us think that, man, every once in a while we just need to tell this person where to get off. We need to give them a piece of our mind and it just straighten them out. Remember, the wrath of man never, never, never accomplishes the righteousness of God. Well, it's easier to say than it is to live. There's a lot of people in here that I guarantee you, as far as practice goes, we don't follow that one very often. But once you begin to start defending yourself, God won't defend you. So anyway, I told these kids that. And you know what they did? They humbled themselves. And instead of praying against the people that had been giving them a hard time, they came to the Lord and asked forgiveness for their rotten attitude. And asked forgiveness for them not loving these people and being so self-centered that they were hurt and offended because people were making fun of them. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm not saying this to hurt anybody's feelings, but I bet you that there's not probably 1%, 2% of the people in this auditorium that would have done that, and there's not very many more than that that would even think that that was a good thing to do. Most people would think, no, sir, man, you, you know, there's some things you need to be upset about, some things you just need to set straight. The Bible says that we're supposed to be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven us. 
And Jesus turned around and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. To the very people that were crucifying him. If anybody was ever justified in being angry or bitter or defending themselves or saying something. You know, Jesus, when the people were mocking him and spitting on him and pulling his beard and they said, prophesy, they blindfolded him and said, prophesy if you're the Christ. Tell us who we are. Boy, don't you think Jesus was tempted to tell them a few things? <laughs> Jesus created them. He could have told them everything and he didn't defend himself. He was like a lamb before his shears. He didn't open his mouth. He was dumb, a lamb being led to the slaughter. He didn't defend himself, didn't say a word. And the scripture says that we're supposed to operate in exactly the same way. Our wrath, our anger, our self-centeredness, our self-dependence upon ourself is wrong. You can justify it any way you want to. You can say, well, I got rights. They can't treat me this way. Well, sure, you got rights. Go argue for them yourself. Or either let God be the one that defends you by keeping your mouth shut and trusting in God. Amen or oh me. I'm preaching better than you're listening. <laughs> this is good stuff. Boy, this will change your life. So you know what these kids did? They asked forgiveness for their heart. They asked forgiveness for being hurt because people were making fun of them and ridiculing them and being sarcastic towards them. Most of us would think, well, they didn't have a thing to ask forgiveness for. Yes, they did, because they said, the Lord told them that they're supposed to walk in love towards others, and they hadn't been walking in love. They were operating in selfishness, self-centeredness, self-defense. They humbled themselves and asked forgiveness, and that day when they walked into the mess hall, they made more fun of them. I mean, it was merciless. It was the worst that it had ever been. And those guys didn't say a word. They turned around and just said, I love you, and they meant it when they said it. And you know what happened that night? the head over the entire uh, camp. Over a thousand people there, all of these preachers, this guy got up and he says, he pointed out this group of young guys. And he says, you know, I have known what's been going on. People have been making fun of them. And he says, I've let it go on because I thought they're wrong. These kids need to be born again. They couldn't be born again and have long hair. And he said, I've let it go on and he said, you know, the scripture says that you'll know them by their love one for another. It says they have exhibited more love than any of us. And the leader of the camp got down in front of these guys and says, could you forgive me? He says, you are more of a Christian than I am. And asked these long-haired hippies to forgive him. And then he singled out all of the kids that had been the instigators and had them march by and he says, you asked these kids to forgive you for your attitude. And boy, they didn't want to do it. And he paraded them by and in front of a thousand people. They had to humble themselves and ask forgiveness. Boy, God can defend you better than you can ever defend yourself. It's awesome. I had a guy in the full gospel businessman in Lamar, Colorado. This guy hated me. The full gospel businessman blackballed me, and I was uh, forbidden to speak in any full gospel businessman's chapter in the whole state of Colorado. They hated me. Boy, they circulated stories about me. And this one guy had never met me, but he heard all of these stories. And uh, he just had spoken about me. It was a bad situation. I'd go to these full gospel businessmen's meetings. I'd bring these Bible study groups that I had with me. I'd go sit at a table where there were people sitting, and they'd all leave. 
the whole table would vacate when Jamie and I sat down. And so I'd have to have people from our Bible study come sit with us. I'd go up to the chairman, the president of the full gospel thing, and, and reach out my hand, and he'd just fold his arms like this, and he says, we don't want you here. I mean, it was bad. And I'd go week, I mean, month after month, and they didn't want me there. And I never said a thing. I kept encouraging my people. I said, hey, we got to show them that we love them. We kept going. And Mel Tari was there one night, and the guy who was introducing Mel Tari, I don't know if any of you are familiar with Full Gospel Ministry, but boy, they can spend two hours introducing somebody and giving, uh, you know, how important. They're really into pride, exalting people and thinking that these people are special. And they spent an hour introducing this guy. This is the greatest man. He was the regional director over seven states of full gospel. This is the greatest man. Oh, we are so blessed to have him. The first thing he did when he got up was look out there and he says, oh, I see that Andrew Womack is in this chapter. He says, what a blessing to have this guy in here. And he got up and just started talking about me. And you know, after that meeting was over, the president that had folded his arms like this came up and just hugged me and kissed me on the cheek. Said, brother, we're so glad to have you here. Boy, the spirit of slap wanted to come all over me. I mean, I wanted to say, yeah, you hypocrite, but I didn't. And this one guy who had hated me, he wasn't there that night. He had never met me, but he had, he had just, he had campaigned against me, told people I was of the devil. Anybody that listened to my tape would be demon-possessed, and he had people actually burn tapes. And anyway, he started going to people's house. He moved to Colorado Springs the same time I moved to Colorado Springs, and he just kept hearing my name. He'd go over to somebody's house, and somebody had received the Lord or received the baptism of the Holy Ghost through listening to one of my tapes. He just kept hearing about me, and it was rubbing him the wrong way. And then he came to one of these regional conventions, and Joe Nay was the speaker. And Joe Nay is the guy that we were both in the same Baptist church together, and we got turned on to the Lord together. So Joe got up every service for seven days and introduced me and had me get up and share and pray for people or do something every service for seven days. And finally, at the banquet, the final night, this guy came up to me, and he just... I mean, he was in tears, and he says, Look, I give, I give. And he told me this whole story about how he had never met me, but he had hated me, told people I was of the devil. And he said, Everywhere I go, I hear these tapes, and then I come to this meeting, and he, he just knelt on his knees in front of me and said, Please forgive me. And we became fast friends. He's a good friend of mine today. We have good relationship. Brothers and sisters, God did that. I, if I would have got in and started arguing with those people, it never would have happened. Man, it's, it's pride when you start defending yourself. It goes directly against what the Scripture says. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. It's not your business to defend yourself. That's self-centeredness. It's pride. It'll harden your heart towards God. You know, you need to humble yourself and become dependent upon God. There's some of you that don't need God. I mean, you're in charge of your own life. You're doing your own thing. You've got your own plans for vengeance. You've got your own plans for success. You've got your own plans for everything. There's a lot of you that you could explain your life away by your own effort. You don't need God. You ought to have a lifestyle that, I mean, your life is dependent upon God. If you can explain your life any other way than being supernatural, then it's superficial. God didn't intend for you to live under your own strength and under your own power. Those of you who have natural talents and abilities and just great gifts and are able to do things on your own, did you know that you're the hardest people to respond to God? Because, man, you can handle it yourself. 
This is what keeps a lot of people from being used of God. It's because maybe they're a good speaker. Maybe they've got an outgoing personality. Maybe they're an extrovert. You know those people, it's hard for God to use them because those people are self-dependent. And this is exactly what the Scripture is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when it says that you see your calling, brethren, how that not many mighty, not many noble, not many wise men after the flesh are chosen, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world, base things of the world, things that are despised, things that are not, to bring to naught things that are, so that no flesh should glory in His presence. You want to know why God picks hicks to be ministers? It's because a hick knows that, man, it's got to be God. God, it's got to be you. God's not a lowbrow. He doesn't just like uneducated people. It's just that people that don't have anything in the natural have to be God-dependent. And a lot of you that have natural talents and abilities and education aren't God-dependent. You're dependent upon yourself. Your attitude is, God, you get me introduced. You just open the door and I can handle it from here. That stinks. There's a lot of you that you got so much on the ball that you don't need God. That's not the attitude that God likes. God resists the proud, but he gives grace unto the humble. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5 says that. The word resist means to actively fight against. Did you know God actively fights against the proud? And again, proud doesn't only mean arrogance. It can mean self-dependent, self-sufficient. If you're self-sufficient, if you're the kind that you can just always get it done on yourself, you don't need to be God-dependent. Do you know God's actively fighting against that? That does not mean that God's personally against you. It doesn't mean that God has anything intentional against you, but it just means that God's laws, His whole kingdom are set up against pride. Satan is the one who originated pride. If you want to study that over in the 14th chapter of the book of Isaiah, it talks about Satan. It calls him Lucifer, the only time Lucifer is used in the entire Bible. And it says that his heart was lifted up. He says it was because of the pride of his heart. He said in his heart, I will be like the Most High God. I will ascend above the sides of the north and set my throne in the kingdom of the north. Satan's sin wasn't that he hated God. He didn't hate the things of God. He didn't dislike everything God had. He loved it. He was envious of it and he wanted it for himself. He wanted the worship and the praise and the glory that went to God alone. That was Satan's sin. He wanted to be like the Most High God, not subservient to Him, but in that position. He wanted that recognition. That's the reason that when Satan came out against Jesus in the fourth chapter of Matthew and fourth chapter of Mark on the temptation, he came and he said, I'll give you everything if you'll fall down and worship me. That's what Satan had always been after. That's what his transgression originally was against God. He wanted the worship, the attention that went to God. And he would have given Jesus everything if he would have just fallen down and worshipped him. Of course, if he'd have done that, he wouldn't have gotten everything. Satan, that would have solidified Satan's position. But that's what Satan tempted him with. That's what Satan's always been after. Do you know that that's what Satan is out to do in your life, is to turn you away from glorifying God? Well, I could bring so many things into this. If you take the first chapter of the book of Romans and look at it, it talks about that every person has an intuitive knowledge of God on the inside of them. Even his eternal power and Godhead is known so that they are without excuse. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. And then in verse 21, he begins to talk about what happened to those that when God revealed himself to them, didn't submit to him. They didn't yield to it. And it lists a progression of things. It says, first of all, they became vain in their imaginations. Their foolish heart was darkened. They didn't glorify Him as God. 
There's a progression here. The revelation they took, instead of glorifying God, instead of operating in praise, it says they weren't thankful also. Instead of being thankful and praising God, they quit doing that. Do you know that this is the reason that praise is so important? It's because when a person is praising God, when you constantly praise God, that means that somebody else is more important than you. That means that you are worshiping someone else. For you to worship a person, it automatically, you have to humble yourself. You have to admit you are not God. That's the reason I enjoyed the worship service tonight so much. You know, there's different types of things that we get into worshiping the Lord tonight, but tonight we were singing, you know, things about how there is no one like you. No one can touch my heart like you do. We were glorifying Jesus and exalting Him. Boy, that's tremendous. That's awesome. And a person who will live a life of praise and thanksgiving, if you are going to fix your heart, like uh, David said in Psalms 57, 7, My heart is fixed, O God, my heart is fixed. I will sing and give praise unto your name. If you make a decision that I'm going to praise you constantly, it keeps you from being the Lord and the ruler and the master of your life. You are constantly exalting someone else's God over your life. Boy, there's tremendous benefit to that. See, Satan, that was his transgression. He wanted to be God. He wanted the praise and the worship. And that's also the reason that praise and worship is such a powerful tool against the devil. There's examples in the Old Testament of Elisha calling for a minstrel, and as the minstrel began to pray and play and worship God, it says that the anointing of God came upon him. Psalms chapter 22, the Lord inhabits the praises of his people. There's also examples of as minstrels played that demons departed from people. It also says in, in Matthew chapter 21 combined with Matthew, uh, Psalms chapter 8 verse 2, it says that praise is strength to still the enemy and the avenger. Talking about Satan. You know why praise stops Satan in his tracks? Because Satan has always desired the praise and the worship that goes to God. And when you start giving it to God, it, it's just an ego trip with the devil's what it is. He is a spoiled brat. He, it just, it's like rubbing salt in a wound. You're praising God, taking away from Him the thing that He's always wanted and He's never been able to get. And I mean, it drives the devil mad. He cannot stand to stay around when you are exalting and praising God. It'll literally drive the devil out of your life. Praise is a powerful force. But a person who is a praiser is a humble person. If you're proud, if you're thinking only about self, you will quit praising. A person who is into self and thinking only about what you don't have, you'll think about the problems that you have instead of thinking about how good God is. I can promise you, if you are depressed tonight, you aren't praising God. It's impossible. They are opposites. They're exclusive. If you're praising God, you cannot be depressed. It doesn't work. To be depressed, you've got to keep your mind stayed on the things that you don't have. You've got to be self-centered. You've got to be thinking about that. You know, it doesn't matter what's going on in your life. You can take your attention today and you can put it on Jesus. You can begin to start thinking about who He is. If you listen to what I said tonight about that there have been more people born again in the last two to three years than there has ever been born again in the history of the world, if you weren't self-centered, you could get plumb excited over that. But there's some of you that it wouldn't matter if everybody in the world got converted. You hadn't got your little petty thing that you want and you're going to be depressed and bummed out regardless. That's just totally self-centered. Amen. 
And I know some of you are thinking, Brother, you don't know my situation. You don't know how bad it is. Well, you don't know how great God is. There is tremendous release, brothers and sisters, in getting out of yourself. Psalms 139, David was talking and he says, if, where can I go? How can I escape from God? God is so awesome. He says, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, he'll find me out. If I go into the pits of hell and make my bed in hell, there God is with me. He says, I can't go anywhere. He says, God knew me even when my parts were unformed in my mother's womb. God knew every one of them, had them all numbered and named even before I was born. That'll do abortionist a world of damage. That's in Psalms 139. Man, if you really got to thinking about how awesome God is, it would change your attitude. Most of us, we're so self-centered, it's like a little gnat on the back of an elephant. And when we see how great God is immediately, most people go to thinking, oh God, I'm so insignificant compared to you. God, I'm so sorry. And we get to thinking about our sorriness. You know what you should do? Instead of thinking about your smallness, think about how big God is when you see your smallness. There's a positive way to respond to that. Instead of thinking about the size of the gnat, think about how big this elephant is. It's gnat's own, amen. Instead of thinking about how sorry you are, go to thinking about how, God, how good God is that he would love somebody as sorry as you. Man, if your whole life is in a mess, if your life is falling apart, you've got a lot to praise God for, that God would die for a mess like you. Well, there's a lot to praise God for. It just depends on your attitude. It's like those Baptist people I was telling you about in Romania. They've had it worse than any of you have ever thought about having it. And yet they didn't even know that they were supposed to gripe and complain. They were focused on the good, what God was doing. They weren't self-centered. Brothers and sisters, self will destroy your life. God did not create you to be a self-centered person. Adam and Eve, when they were first created, they were so God-conscious. They had their minds so stayed upon God that the very first thing that happened when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the first thing that happened was they realized they were naked. You know, they had been naked the whole time from their creation up until that point, and yet they never noticed it. That's awesome. They were so God-conscious, they never thought about being naked. That's like you getting so conscious about God you wouldn't even notice if you had your clothes on or not when you left the house. Most of us can't even relate to that. Adam and Eve were so God conscious that they didn't even notice they weren't clothed. Awesome. When sin entered is when self, they became aware of self. Our whole frame of reference, the way that we've been brought up, most of us, what I'm saying is so foreign to you. It's just like this does not compute. There's nowhere for this to light in your life. It's just like there's, there's no landing zone. It's like this thought has to just fly right on in one ear and out the other. There's no, there's no receptors for it. There's no foundation, no way to receive something like this. But brothers and sisters, one of the biggest things you'll ever do to prepare your heart to seek God is to learn that you are not God you are not capable of running your life. You should not be in charge of your life. And one of the best things you'll ever do is to humble yourself and make Jesus Lord over your life. And just turn on self. Get rid of self. Who cares what happens to self? Some of you are thinking, brother, you just can't live that way. You can live better that way. God will take care of you. God will promote you. 
You know, I'm not, a, I'm not the perfect example. I hadn't arrived, but praise God, I've left. Amen. And I can tell you that when God found me, I was a failure. I was going nowhere. I had nothing. I was a college dropout. And I had, right after the Lord uh, intervened in my life and I got turned on to the Lord, I was walk, working in the media department of the Arlington, Texas public school system. I was working for minimum wage. And the boss there just took a liking to me. And that boss, right after I got turned on to the Lord, he came to him and he said, Andy, I know that you don't have an education or anything, but he says, I like you, you've got potential. And he says, I'm going to make you an associate head over this department. And I mean town of Arlington, Texas has 250,000 people. I was going to be an associate over that media department. He guaranteed me a salary that would have been totally, totally out of reach for anything I would have ever been able to do. It had all of those benefits. It was a government job, all of these things. And here I was like 19 years old and he was offering this stuff to me. I mean, it was a miracle. And I was excited. But guess what? The Lord told me I was supposed to be a minister. And I really didn't even struggle about it. I just told him, I said, well, thanks. I really count it as an honor. But I said, this is not what God's told me to do. And he said, you're crazy. He got my mother in there. My mother knew him. And he sat me down and says, tell this guy. He says, he'll never get an offer like this. And you know, because I'd made this decision that self wasn't going to rule my life, there was no real choice about it. I knew that wasn't what God wanted me to do. And it didn't matter. I didn't care if I ever had anything. You know, as it turned out, I'm living a lot better now than I ever would have lived on that job. Plus, I've got the joy and the peace of knowing the Lord and knowing that I'm serving God. When I, when I did that, it looked like it was the wrong decision. If I would have been trusting in myself to direct my own steps, I'd have ruined my life. But you know what? Because I let the peace of God rule in my heart and I tried to do what God told me to do, man, I am fulfilled, I'm happy, I'm having a great time doing what God's told me to do. Another time I had a similar thing happen. I was one of my landlords. I was in debt to him and I had to go tell this landlord. I said, I'm sorry, I hadn't got the money, but I promise you I will pay you. If I had said my wife's blood's worth $85 a pint, I said, if I have to sell it, I can get $85 a pint for it. I said, we will get caught up. And he says, well, I tell you what, I've got a photography studio. And he said, the guy that develops my pictures has quit. And he shot all of the high school pictures. And he said, I'm so far behind, I'm fixing to lose the whole contract. He says, would you come and work for me and develop pictures? I'll let you work out your rent. And so I said, okay. And anyway, within two weeks, I'd saved this guy's business. I was developing pictures and doing a better job at it than what he could. And I'm not saying that for any other... I mean, I had this one thing where you take a, a billfold picture... And you put eight billfold pictures on one eight and a half, eleven, eight and a half by eleven sheet of paper. And uh, because of the way you have to do it, you have to put the picture in there and then shoot it. And you, anyway, it's a long story, but you could shoot eight pictures of the same person with no problem. But to put a different person's picture in there, you had to uh, take the thing out of the machine. And when you did that, the light came on. So you had to take the piece of paper you was working with and put it in a box that no light could get to it, then change the picture and then bring it out. And when you did that, you lost your place on this 8.5 by 11 because it wasn't developed yet. You didn't know where that picture was. It was impossible to do. But I had this order where I had to do just one picture of about 200 people. So instead of doing one picture per 8.5 sheet, I figured that was wasteful. I put eight different pictures on one sheet. 
And I had it sitting out to dry, and my boss came by and saw that, and he looked at that, and he says, you couldn't do this again in a million years. He says, I've developed pictures for 30 years, and I've done it one time in 30 years I've been able to do that. He says, don't waste your time trying this anymore. You'd never do that again in a million years. And I said, oh, yeah, and I took him in another room, and I had 10 tables that were full of those things waiting to dry. And he just shook his head. He said, I don't know how you're doing this. And anyway, he offered me a partnership in the business. He offered me, he says, I'll give you a $30,000 equal partnership in the business if you'll develop these pictures. He says, I've never seen anybody could do stuff like that. And you know what I had to tell him? I said, God called me to go to Pritchett, Colorado. I went to Pritchett, Colorado. Ten people in the church. Only 144 people in the whole town. I mean, Pritchett isn't the end of the world, but you can see it from there. <laughs> First time I ever went through Pritchett, I was with Don Crow, and I said, boy, I believe God called you here. <laughs> I couldn't believe anybody. I said, I don't believe anybody would ever live in this town. This is the sorriest place I, on the face of the earth, and within two months, I was pastoring a church there. God called me there, and we saw a guy raised from the dead in that church and started having 100 people come to church out of 144. And you know, that's where my whole ministry changed. And when I went to Pritchett, I can guarantee you, I left that opportunity at the photography studio. I went there and I was convinced that I'd leave Pritchett feet first. There was no way you could come out of Pritchett alive. <laughs> and yet that's what God used in my life to totally change me. Everything that has happened to me today, it began right there in Pritchett. It was awesome. I could spend a lot of time talking about it. Brothers and sisters, you cannot direct your own life. God's ways for you are different than your own ways. You can never release your potential and find what God has for you under your own wisdom and under your own direction. You've got to just come to a place to where, God, here I am. You can do anything in my life. Anything. There are no limits. There is nothing I will not do for you. There is no part of my life that you cannot touch. There is none of me that you cannot have. God, search me if there's anything in me that you don't like. Here it is. There's a lot of people in this room that have never done that. And that's exactly the reason that you're experiencing the problems that you're experiencing. Not because God's mad at you, but just because you are messing up your own life. Satan can deceive you, but Satan cannot deceive God. If you listen to God and let God direct you, you'll never go wrong. You know, Moses was a powerful man of God. Look over in Numbers, the 12th chapter. This will give you a, an insight on pride that is different than what many of you have thought. Numbers chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Miriam and Aaron spake against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. An Ethiopian woman was a black woman. Moses was an Israeli. He had an Arab complexion and he married a black woman an interracial marriage and because of this his brother and sister came out against him and spoke against him because of it you know this answered for me this problem about interracial marriages <laughs> I could still tell a person that boy you're going to open yourself up to problems you need to think about it it's going to put stress on you and on that child there's still reasons to say things about it but to say that it's wrong or it's not of God and I'm not going to do it I don't want to come down with leprosy in verse 2 look what happened and they said, Hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not spoken by us, also by us? And the Lord heard it. Verse 3, Now the man Moses was very meek 
above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. Man, that is a tremendous statement. Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. That's an awesome statement. I don't know how many people were on the earth. Hundreds of thousands or whatever, but out of all of those people, to be the most humble person on the face of the earth, that's quite a statement. And you know what's even more exciting about this is that Moses wrote this. Moses is the one that wrote this. Moses said he was the meekest man on the face of the earth. Boy, most people right there, you just lost your concept of what true humility is. Most people think if you're truly humble, you're the last one that knows it. I heard a story one time about a guy that a church took a vote to find out who the most humble person was, and everybody agreed it was this one guy. So on Sunday morning, they presented him with the humble button, called him up in front of the church, and gave him this button that says most humble on it. And because he accepted it, they took it away. <laughs> Most people believe that if you're really humble, you're the last one to know it. But you know what true humility is? True humility is not having an opinion about yourself, good or bad. Religion has taught us you can think too good about yourself, but you cannot think too bad about yourself. That's wrong. A low self-esteem, bad self-image, bad where you hate yourself and you're just constantly down on yourself, that's a very proud person. A timid person is a super proud person. A shy person is a very proud person because you're constantly thinking about yourself, how inferior you are to somebody else. You're proud. It's pride that makes you feel inferior. It's pride that takes away your confidence. If you really knew who you were in Christ, you could do anything God told you to do, but nothing He didn't tell you to do. You would never exalt yourself above that position and you would never go below it. It's just as bad to go below what God says about you as it is to go above it. If God says that he's called you to be an executive and that you have gifts and talents and abilities and if you say, oh God, I don't think I can handle that, that's pride. You're telling God, you know better than God knows? That's wrong. Amen. You've got to redefine what pride is. You know, somebody in here has got to be more humble than anybody else. If I was to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes and let everybody pray, and we're going to ask God to reveal who the most humble person in this auditorium is. If we were to pray, and if God spoke to you and He says, you're the most humble, would you be humble enough to stand up and say, it's me, I'm the most humble. <laughs> if you could say, oh, I wouldn't do that, what would people think about me? Then you're self-centered. You aren't the most humble. A truly humble person, if God said it about you, you'd stand up and say, well, it's me. God told me it was me. And you wouldn't care what anybody had to think. <laughs> Do you know, for some people, being blessed is humility. There's some of you that wouldn't be rich because you think, well, you know, I'd be arrogant and things like that. And you're more proud by being poor than you, were, you would be by being rich. There's some of you that true humility for you would be driving around a Rolls Royce. There's some of you that all that would do is indulge your flesh, but there's some of you that that would humiliate you. That'd probably be the best thing for you. That's true. Humility is different things for different people. So Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth. Look over in the 33rd chapter of the book of Numbers. I'm going to quit, Bernie. You don't have to quit luck. keep watch, looking at your watch. <laughs> I'm going to quit sooner or later, brother. <laughs> 
He did did one of these numbers. <clears throat> According to my watch, it's just 11 minutes after 5. <laughs> I got plenty of time, amen. All right, where am I? I? Did I say numbers? It's Exodus 33. That watch threw me off. Exodus 33. This is right after Moses had been up on the mountain and had received the tables of stone and had come down and got so angry at the children of Israel that he broke them and destroyed them. And then he was talking to the Lord in Numbers 30, I mean Exodus 33:12. And Moses said unto the Lord, See, thou sayest unto me, Bring up this people, and thou hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me yet. Thou hast said, I know thee by name, and thou hast also found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way that I may know thee, that I may find grace in thy sight, and consider that this nation is thy people. That's a little wordy, but what he's basically saying is he wanted to see God. You can see that by the context down here. This is where God literally let him see the backside of God. And this is what Moses was asking for, is to see God. And the Lord offered him something less than what he asked for. Look here in the next verse. In verse 14, he said, uh, in verse 14, he said, My presence shall go with thee, and I will, be, I will give thee rest. You know, that's quite a promise right there. This is something tremendous that God offered Moses. He says, My presence will go with thee. In other words, I'll always be with you, and I'll give you rest. That was a tremendous promise, but look what Moses' reaction was. In verse 15, he said unto him, If thy presence go not with me, carry us not up hence. For wherein shall it be known here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? Is it not that thou goest with us? So shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the people that are upon the face of the earth? And the Lord said unto Moses, I will do this thing also that you have spoken. And this is when he showed him the back parts of God. But the thing that was going on here is that God said, Moses, I'll be with you. And Moses said, God, that's nothing special. He says, I was counting on that. He says, if your presence doesn't go with me, don't carry us up from hence. In other words, this showed something about the meekest man on the face of the earth. One of the things, see, one of the characteristics that made him truly meek was he was 100% God dependent. When God says, I'll go with you, Moses said, hey, I was taking this for granted. If you aren't going with me, I'm not taking a step. I will not move. I am not budging an inch if you aren't going with me. I'm not doing anything on my own. See, that is a real characteristic of humility, is a person who's God-dependent. God, what is your will for me? And brothers and sisters, a lot of us haven't even taken the first step. This is the first step in preparing your heart for the Lord, is to humble your heart. When you humble yourself before God, then the Lord will begin to prepare your heart. The Lord will begin to start molding your heart and making your heart sensitive. Having a sensitive heart to God, knowing the things of God, it's really a result of some other decisions, which I believe that probably the most important one is to just humble yourself and say, God, you are God in my life. I am not. I make you ruler over everything. And you submit yourself to Him. By doing that, you set in motion a progression of events where God will start moving in your life and softening your heart towards God. It'll change your life. And I don't know anything about this crowd. Bernie didn't tell me to say any of these things. I'm just saying that if you're breathing, I know you need this. Every last one of us have a self. And there is very, 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 there are very few people who are saying things like what I'm saying. And so therefore, in most Christians, self is completely intact. 
Self has never been challenged. And you don't get rid of self. You don't deal with self just accidentally. It has to be a deliberate act action. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. You aren't going to just automatically be dead to self. It takes effort on your part and you have to hear the Word of God. Some of you have been challenged with some things tonight that you may have never heard before. Or if you've heard them, maybe you didn't have the understanding. But there is some of you that God has spoken to tonight that you need to respond. You need to respond positively by saying, God, I am going to turn on self. I'm going to deny myself and I'm going to make you Lord over everything. I want you to have control. I want to humble myself and let you begin to start preparing my heart and changing me. There's some of you in here that need that. Some of you have never dealt with self. Amen? I know there's some of you thinking, oh boy, I know so-and-so that should have been here to hear this. <laughs> I'm convinced that all the selves that are here needed to hear this. God didn't send me here to say this to the people that aren't here tonight. You know, we could talk about the crowd this morning. There was at least twice as many people here this morning. Sunday morning crowds are the ones that need to hear this. But I'm convinced that the people that are here tonight need to hear this. Everybody does. I want to ask you to just be honest, open, bold with the Lord. If you'd be honest enough to say, Brother, I'm guilty. I hadn't really dealt with self. Now, some of you have. And you need to be humble enough to just stay put, regardless of what anybody else thinks. You need to be honest and real and genuine with the Lord. But there's some of you, you may be good people in here, but the truth is that self is dominant, ruling, controlling your life, and you have never consciously rejected it. You have never consciously said that I am going to make Jesus Lord over self, that self is not my God, I will not be self-centered. There's some of you in here that have never done that, and you have to have a starting place somewhere. And I want to give you an invitation tonight to just say that I'm guilty. I'm self-centered. I repent. And I make Jesus Lord over myself. This has nothing to do with your personal salvation. You can be born again and have committed your eternal salvation to the Lord and yet not have your personal life on a day-to-day -day basis submitted unto God. You could be a totally self-centered person doing your own thing and trying to get God to bless your own thing. When you make this commitment that Jesus is going to rule and control, you know what? You don't have to ask God to bless it. You can just do it because it, whatever God's led you to do, it's already blessed. You don't even have to even seek God's blessing. It's already there. Is there anybody here tonight that you just say, that's me? If that's you, I want you to be bold enough to just stand right where you are. By doing so, you're saying, I'm self-centered, I'm turning on self, and I'm making a commitment that Jesus is going to rule and control my life. And the reason I'm asking you to do it and stand up is so that you can get the maximum humiliation for self. Amen. You have to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And God will lift you up. Anybody else?